On March 7, 2022, less than a month into Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, the front page of the New York Times ran a graphic photograph that shook the world and summed up the tragic human cost of the war. The photo was taken by the Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario. We ran across the street and immediately came upon um, the bodies of these four civilians. Um, I noticed immediately a small, uh, a, a young boy with sort of moon boots on. And it looked like everyone was sleeping. It looked like they had kind of just fallen over from a standing position. And they were all kind of in this very splayed out, but almost in a rhythmic way, weirdly. And I couldn't tell if they were alive or dead. Of course, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't take their pulse or touch them. There was a medic there and there was also a Ukrainian soldier there. And I started photographing immediately. I had to kind of remind myself, like sort of snap myself out of the moment and say, okay, I just witnessed the deliberate targeting of civilians. I have to take pictures. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Tectopia. Capturing that image had also put Lindsay Adario in grave danger, something that she has confronted over and over again during her more than two-decade career as one of the most accomplished war photographers in the world. Adario has been covering the war in Ukraine since the beginning, and as we near the one-year anniversary of the invasion, which will fall on February 24, 2023, she describes the toll of the conflict on Ukrainian civilians and reflects on the personal cost of covering conflict. I spoke with Adario when she made a brief stop in Washington, D.C. on November 3rd to receive the prestigious Courage in Journalism Award from the International Women's Media Foundation. Lindsay, welcome to Tectopia. Hi. So good to see you in person. This is our third conversation, but our first in person. So really happy to meet you in person and to have this conversation. So nice to meet you too. So you have been in and out of Ukraine since February, uh, doing your usual extraordinary body of work. Uh, among them, you photographed one of the most iconic images of the conflict to date, which has, I know, been talked about a lot. And we're going to talk about some of your other photographs as well. But this one was dangerous for you physically. It happened, you were there when it happened in March. So it was a mother and her two children and uh, a church volunteer who was trying to usher them to safety. And basically, I had been uh, covering the war since it started. Um, I got there before the beginning of the war in mid-February. And I was covering the constant missile barrage on Kiev and every day waking up and covering these strikes and and then trying to cover people fleeing and really just getting kind of a spectrum of what, you know, how war affects civilians. But I felt like I was really missing, I was missing a powerful shot of sort of the civilian toll of this war. And so I was looking at my colleagues' work coming out of the Irpin Bridge, the area where it was a known civilian evacuation route. And I didn't go the first few days because I wasn't sure about the safety. I have had many close calls in my career and I try to be cautious when I can. And finally, I, on a Saturday evening, I started witnessing kind of these incredible images coming out from Emilio Mordinetti from the Associated Press and Clarissa Ward. Her reporting was extraordinary from the bridge and just seeing the hundreds of civilians desperately fleeing across that bridge. And so I made a decision with my team and my security advisor and Andrei Dubchak, who is a Ukrainian journalist, to go the next morning. 
We went the next morning. We went very early in the morning at like left the hotel around seven, got there um, around eight and it was tense. It definitely felt like um, I had been warned that there was artillery in the background and and in the town of Irpin and Bucha. And of course, we've all seen the atrocities that, that were happening in Bucha but that most of it was taking place on the other side of the bridge. So we sort of proceeded with caution toward the bridge and started seeing uh, some territorial defense guys with the Ukrainian military bringing people out. There were a lot of elderly. They were helping the elderly carry their suitcases and animals and cats and dogs. And we were documenting all that. And then found a position where there was a bit of cover. We were kind of behind the cement wall. And at that point, a round came in a few hundred meters off in the distance. And Steve, my security advisor, said, would you like to leave? And I said, no, because everyone knows, especially the Russians, that this is a civilian evacuation route and they would never target something that's so clearly marked and that everybody has seen the images. And so he's like, "Okay." so we stay where we were. And then the next round came in pretty quickly after that. A little closer. Um, they definitely were not moving away from our position, but moving closer. And then the third round came in uh, about 20 feet from us, or maybe a little more, but really kind of equidistant between our position and where the mother and her two, her two children and the church volunteer were killed. So it was it was terrifying, of course, because the round came so close that I was sprayed with gravel. Um, I didn't realize, uh, I didn't know if I had actually been hit with shrapnel. Um, so you can hear me asking Andre, am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? We were kind of trying to get our bearings. Um, you know, there was dust everywhere. Steve, the security advisor, immediately ran out, which was, he was incredible. He ran out immediately and dragged uh, one of the territorial defense guys uh, to cover and then ran across the street to see if anyone had been injured and immediately called for a medic. At that point, I thought, um, I couldn't see across the street because it was far enough where it was pretty dusty and I, I couldn't tell what was going on, but I, I knew that Steve had called for a medic, so assumed that someone had been injured. And then he finally allowed us to cross the street to to cross sort of that open road that was still being shelled. We ran across the street and immediately came upon um, the bodies of these four civilians. Um, I noticed immediately a small... Uh, a, a young boy with sort of moon boots on and it looked like everyone was sleeping. It looked like they had kind of just fallen over from a standing position and they were all kind of in this very splayed out, but almost in a rhythmic way, weirdly. And I couldn't tell if they were alive or dead. Of course, I, I didn't, I, I didn't take their pulse or touch them. There was a medic there and there was also a Ukrainian soldier there and I started photographing immediately. I had to kind of remind myself, like sort of snap myself out of the moment and say, okay, I just witnessed the deliberate targeting of civilians. I have to take pictures. And so I started photographing, not thinking that they might ever get published because it's so sensitive to photograph people who are killed and, and bodies or people who are, you know, it's a very sensitive decision of whether to publish images like that. And so I worked my way around the scene. 
and took pictures from different angles because I also was aware that it was a potential war crime. It was a deliberate targeting of civilians. So I, I knew I had to document it, but in the most respectful way possible. At the same time, there were still rounds coming in and Steve uh, was, you know, we had to work quickly. And so we did not stay very long at all. And then eventually kind of, uh, you know, very quickly left the scene. Uh, there were still civilians streaming across the bridge and streaming into Kiev because, of course, they had nowhere else to go. Yeah. And, and when you are in shock, right, you yourself got sprayed with gravel. You you had a near and close encounter there. Right. I don't know if it was one of the closest you've ever had or one of many, obviously. <laughs> right. Many. Um, in the variations of danger that you've been in. What's that like? I mean, as a photographer, you are trained to look through that lens to be able to get what you can in that moment. How do you, I know you've got people protecting you, but how do you, how I, do you, how do you balance that looking through the lens, but being aware of what's around you and when to get in and when to get out? I mean, first of all, we have, you know, we do have security advisors for the New York Times, but no one can protect you from artillery. I mean, it's not, you know, the, you know, the best sort of cover we had that day was this cement kind of cubby that we kept diving into every time around came in. And I think I've had a lot of close calls. I've had mostly with bullets. You know, I've heard uh, the whiz of bullets very close by. I've been, I spent two weeks on the front line um, in Libya and there was, the Libyan military was using all sorts of different weapons on the positions of the uh, the rebels um, who we as journalists were with as we move forward. But this was a situation where I was definitely in shock and I, I I knew, I thought it was a really close call, but when you're in shock, you don't, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe it wasn't as close as I remembered it. And I didn't realize that Andre had been recording video. So I didn't realize, you know, I kind of convinced myself in the car back to the hotel that actually maybe it wasn't so close and, and maybe it was fine. And it wasn't until we got to the hotel, Clarissa Ward showed me the video on Facebook that Andre, I don't know when he managed to upload it, but, um, you know, she was really, really kind of shaken. And then I just started crying and thinking, oh my God, I, I can't believe it. And and then my first instinct, of course, was I hope my mother uh, doesn't see this. And then I thought, I hope my husband doesn't see this. <laughs> my kids are too young. Of course, I don't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have the wherewithal to see it, but then also, one thing that I didn't mention is, you know, I think it's from years of experience that I was able to sort of collect myself and shoot because in a lot of the other close calls I've had, I'm so busy looking for a place to dig myself into the ground and hide and get covered that a lot of times I forget to shoot. So this was a case where I think, you know, 20 plus years of experience covering war allowed me to be able to collect myself and actually photograph. See, I'm so glad you mentioned that because the fact that you also have made those kinds of mistakes in the field where you're like, oh my God, you know, I'm like, have to protect myself and I forgot to click, you know, it's, it's, when all you're the in time. The, yeah. Yeah. All the time. I mean, I, you know, I always think I'm like the worst war photographer because I'm not that brave. And I always, you know, I'm concerned with like trying to stay alive, you know, this job, you know, there's not much longevity in this job because there's so much trauma and a lot of people sort of do it for a little while and drop out. And I, and I think it's very important for me to, to sort of, listen to my instincts and try to keep myself in check. And I, and so 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because I've been measured in the past or I have been so busy trying to protect myself and not taking photos, but I beat myself up over it all the time. That's crazy, though, because the most important thing is to stay alive, you know, and to be careful. So I was going to ask you, how do you deal with 20 years into doing this, more than 20 years now, how do you deal with the emotional trauma of it all? Are you still able to handle it? Yeah, I mean, handle is a kind of broad word. I mean, of course, I can handle it. I'm functioning. I'm a very happy person. I think like my family, genetically, we're just all pretty happy people. We're four sisters, my parents, everyone's like, very positive. Um, but I think I, um, I'm very emotional, you know, the older I get, the more emotional I get, I, you know, often when I'm in the field, and I see something horrible, I will cry. I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not made of stone. And there are moments where things overwhelm me things that I that you wouldn't think would provoke uh, PTSD or trauma or whatever. And but they do. And and I allow myself that because I think if I if I didn't, it would be weird. You know, if I if I didn't have these emotional moments, it would be strange given all I've covered. Yeah, I remember actually seeing that video of you seeing the photographs of you seeing you in that in the shot as you were shooting it. And I was like, wait, that's Lindsay Adario. You know, I mean, I was, mm. I was telling my son and we can see that the, mm. how close you were to, you know, you have to get close, but sometimes it's almost too close, right? In an artillery war, you can't really be the judge of that. You know, either you're lucky or unlucky. Yeah. So that photo, you know, also has personal resonance for you, I'm sure, because you have focused so much of your body of work on women and children and the elderly, the the civilians who get caught in the line of fire. Mm. You know, I know you've talked about this in our in our interviews before, but it seems like that's your area of focus, your way of bringing the war home to your your audience. I try. I mean, I think that there are, I mean, again, maybe it goes back to, I don't think that I'm very brave compared to a lot of my colleagues. And a lot of my colleagues prefer to be kind of right on the front line, uh, photographing the souls, kind of loading weapons, getting shelled, you know, and I think that work is a really important part of the war. And I, as I think covering civilians is important, but maybe one step back in Ukraine that hasn't always held true because kind of everywhere in Ukraine is a target, as we see, you know, not, you know, no places off limits for the Russian military. And so I think those those rules have been harder to kind of follow. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I. I don't exclusively exclusively cover women and children, but I do think it's really important for me to show that they are the innocent people being killed. And you've been covering the war, as you said, almost from the very beginning, or right from, from, the beginning. from the beginning. You know, February 20th, I guess, is the one-year anniversary, 24th. What what are your perceptions being on the ground and, and seeing what's happening? I mean, I, it's just extraordinary that this is still going on. You know, we have a situation where uh, Russia has invaded a sovereign country in Europe and and civilians are being killed. And I don't know how many people have been displaced, millions, people's lives uprooted, homes destroyed. We're going into a cold winter, uh, which is terrifying. A lot of people don't even have windows, you know, and I think uh, January, February will be very grim. And so uh, this past pattern has emerged where Mondays, the Russians seem to try to take out the electricity and water sources. And that has been a pattern the last few weeks. And so 
uh, with every time they do that. There are rolling blackouts. There are people with no, you know, no heat. There are people with no water. And so I think as the winter gets colder, this will become a real crisis. And uh, you've had also a chance to photograph uh, President Zelensky, if I remember correctly. I saw some great photographs of you photographing him and the palace area, his office. What was that experience like and what's your sense of him? I've only gotten access to Zelensky once. I was very excited because I think that he has really conducted himself in a real exemplary way during this war in the sense that he's been a real leader. You know, he has not taken up the offer from the United States to to leave at the beginning of the war and preserve his own life. He's rallied his people. He's unified the public. He doesn't seem to ever sleep. I mean, he's still welcoming diplomats daily. And he's just, you know, I, I think that he has really shown the world this incredible what it takes to fight for democracy and what it means to really honor that freedom and to fight for it. And I think that, you know, we all take for granted the fact that we have freedom of speech, that we are, have not been invaded here in the U.S. this century. And so I think it's really important to to look at him as an example, because we we need to understand that they are fighting for their lives, they're fighting for their freedom, they're fighting for their voice, and he has shown the world what that means. Um, I saw in, an, in a recent interview in the New York Times, you said, every day when I map out what I'm going to shoot, I'm trying to think about where is the narrative, where are we at this war, what do I need to include how do you do that? How do you plan something like this? I mean, it's hard and it's hard the longer the war goes on because it's like, what can I contribute to the coverage aside from daily news coverage, which is very, very important. How do I do it? I read everything I can. I watch the news. I'm trying to look at different sources of news, both, you know, the Ukrainian. I follow a lot of Ukrainian journalists. I follow a lot of Ukrainian people in the in the sort of uh, defense ministry. I'm following, you know, I'm trying to get a put my finger on the pulse of what the story is that needs to be told, because as a photographer, I'm not just a photographer. I'm a journalist. And I think that it's really important for people to realize photographers are out there really doing our own reporting and trying to get out there and trying to do every day what I what you just described in that quote. And that's really about understanding where the story is going and how we can cover that. That's great. Um, are there any other photos of your colleagues that to you represent the most uh, the biggest moments of the war in Ukraine, things that stay in your mind or even your own photos? Well, of course. I mean, look, the work of the Associated Press has been unbelievable. And especially when, you know, when Mariupol was under siege and you had Evgeny. The and pregnant woman yeah, exactly. on a stretcher. Exactly. I mean, that, you know, I think if we didn't have journalists there, no one would have known that a maternity hospital was targeted. And it's like, how low can you get as a politician to target pregnant women and children and newborns? And so I think the the go-to for Putin probably would have been denial, but it was impossible because the Associated Press was there. And so I think that work has been amazing. I think there are so many journalists who have been doing incredible work. I mean, the entire New York Times team has 
been relentless, of course. Washington Post has been doing great work. Uh, Heidi Levine, um, Paula Bronstein, Jim Noctway did great work for, for The New Yorker. You know, I think the Ukrainian journalist Maxime Dondiuk, uh, Andre Dubchak, who I've been working with, it's just the list goes on and on. I mean, Nicole Tung, I, I think, you know, for me, it's so inspirational to look at the work that my colleagues are doing because it just makes me work harder. You know, sir, we've also, in addition to covering wars, you know, we've also been through a COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. Just philosophically in your life, you know, you've got kids and, you know, husband and family back home. And do you still feel this is what I do, which is the name of your first book? Or do you sometimes say, okay, I think I'm done. <laughs> I've done this. I've done a great job. This is it. I mean, there is not a moment in the day where I think I could ever walk away from this. I mean, that day may come. I mean, I have no idea, but I am as passionate now about this work and doing these stories and telling these stories as I was the day I started. And I think, you know, I just was in Somalia. I was there uh, for 10 days in October for National Geographic. And the story came out today. And I think I killed myself to try and do that story in a small window that I had that I was supposed to be home with my kids. But I, you know, there's sort of a looming famine. There's this ongoing drought in the Horn of Africa. People are starving. That should not be happening in 2022. That, of course, compounded with the war, the the war in Ukraine. Grain is not getting out. You know, there are so many factors. And so I, I just believe in journalism and I believe in telling these stories. And I think people need to see. That's great. And you're here in town, I think, to accept a couple of awards. Is that right? Uh, um, <laughs> the IWMF Award. Um, That's for, the Courage in Journalism. Correct. The Courage in Journalism Award for the IWMF. And then um, I won a Lucy Award last week, an Impact Award in New York. That's fantastic. And then you're also, you've wrapped up your work for National Geographic on Somalia. Correct. I wrap that up. I'm now going back to Ukraine on Monday um, for another three weeks. And then December, I hope to be with my family. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, have a wonderfully safe trip. Thank you. And a safe trip back. Oh, and um, if I I have to say, I have my first mid-career retrospective at the School of Visual Arts in New York. It's um, about 150 works from all around the world from the last 25 years of my career. So I think, you know, they've just extended the show. They've had record numbers of visitors. Hillary Clinton came to visit a few weeks ago or like 10 days ago. Tina Brown and Katie Couric. And it's really it's getting um, great traffic, you know, from students to all different people. And so, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll have to go check it out. Till when is it? uh... December 10th. Okay. I think people have to go see it. Yeah, it's at School of Visual Arts, 601 West 26th on the 15th floor. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. Lindsay Adario is a Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist and war photographer for the New York Times and National Geographic. Since September 11, 2001, Adario has covered conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Lebanon, Darfur, South Sudan, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Yemen, Syria, and now the ongoing war in Ukraine. Adario is the author of a book of war photographs titled Of Love and War and the New York best-selling memoir, It's What I Do, in which she writes about the incredible risks she has taken photographing every major conflict and humanitarian crisis of her generation played out against the backdrop of the post-9-11 war on terror. 
In 2015, American Photo Magazine named Adario as one of the five most influential photographers of the past 25 years, saying she changed the way we saw the world's conflicts. Her images centered on conflict, humanitarian crises, and women's issues around the Middle East and Africa have garnered numerous awards and accolades. In fact, I spoke with Adario when she made a brief stop in Washington, D.C. on November 3rd to receive the prestigious Courage in Journalism Award from the International Women's Media Foundation. To hear Adario's personal story of how she became a photojournalist, how she covers major conflicts, how she survived a violent kidnapping in Libya, and why she does the work she does— do check out my interview with her on my leadership podcast, When It Mattered, episode 35. It's an incredible story. And do listen to Adario's previous appearance on Tectopia, episode 18, on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and the aftermath of the chaotic pullout of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. I'll link to both of those episodes on my website. This is Tectopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.